Hi and welcome to yet another episode of BroPod where we talk to those at Defy Convention from the worlds of sports, media, finance or politics. We are very excited for today's guest but before we get to that I am as always joined by my co-host Kieran McKenna. How are you? Doing good Marcus. How about yourself? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right, to be fair. You know, fall's in the air. Scotland is actually pretty nice. I like fall, but the rain is just, uh, you know, a little not bit of a... Not too bad right now. No, it's all right. It's all right. Um, into more uh, entertaining matters other than the fucking weather. Uh, how is uh, how is the footy going? How was uh, the first league game, league opener? Um, it was disappointing. Mm. We lost. Uh, we hadn't... And the Betfred Cup games, although we hadn't won all of them, we had played well in particular moments in all the games. Um, dominated large parts of the games, created a ton of chances in all of them. So we were looking, we're pretty confident, looking stronger at the league opener, and then we we lose one now, and we couldn't, we didn't have the same kind of domination or creativity that we had in previous games. So that was definitely disappointing, but. Still, you know, in the first game of the season, so we're more than confident that. Yeah, yeah. And you guys good. are a good team, and you'll yeah. bounce back, and you'll be, uh, you'll be obviously fighting up there. Mm-hmm. Um, but for but the yourself, case, yourself, two clean sheets in a row. They don't worry about two, it. Was it two wins in a row as well? Two wins. Two one wins. One in the Betfred. Classic one no wins. One in the Betfred and one in the league. Yeah. Um, which is nice, but it is nice for the both of us, as we've discussed before. Under different circumstances, now we are playing, and that brings a, a different uh, energy to the household. I'd yeah, say, absolutely. you know, that's we feel, that. we feel warranted. And the, and, and, the, and the Saturday comes with excitement, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, so hopefully, hopefully, Jesus, my bad. Uh, hopefully, hopefully that can continue. Um, if we go into today's guest, we have Jason Christ yeah. with us. Now we've had. A fair amount of MLS representation, to be fair. Yeah, and, and Duke alums. And Duke alums. And why wouldn't we when yeah. we have the Duke community that we have and uh, Duke alums that have gone on to uh, to achieve very good things, yeah. basically, lack of yeah. a better word. Um, and so for those that might not know, he's a current Fort Lauderdale, Fort Lauderdale CF head coach, which is the second team of Inter-Miami. But he's Inter-Miami senior academy director he's also u.s men's national under 23 head coach and an american legend american yeah. soccer legend so he's got three roles there to to, yeah. to to juggle and then before that he had a professional career um soccer career obviously making over 300 appearances over 12 years in the mls um and after playing which we'll touch upon in the which we did touch upon in the interview mm-hmm. um about him taking over Real Salt Lake in a matter of 24 hours from being their captain. He was also New York City FC's first appointment in their first season in MLS yeah. and also in as a coach for Orlando City. Yeah. Um, and at Real Salt Lake, he did notoriously well. He led them from 2007 to 2013, won the MLS Cup in 2009 as the youngest head coach in MLS history. He led them to consecutive playoff appearances basically throughout his time there uh, lost MLS Cup in 2013 on penalties but they reached the CONCACAF Champions League final appearance as the first MLS team to do so and then in January 9, 2019 he's now in those in in the senior ac- mm-hmm. academy director role that he is at Inter Miami legend of the game been part of 
the initial growth of the MLS, been yeah. through it all, seen it all, um, and has brought with him a philosophy uh, during his playing career, but also as a, as a coach uh, that is preached on selflessness, yeah. hard work, and determination. What are your immediate thoughts having uh, having had a, a lovely hour chat with, with Jason? Yeah, no, I think... We found out that he's a man of many firsts. He was right. He was there for the first season of the MLS as a player. Had a great career throughout the whole MLS. Seen it grow at, at the beginning years. He then brought success to Real Salt Lake as a coach. Probably the first kind of successful seasons they had as a franchise. A struggling franchise. Yeah. In that, at that becomes too. the first manager of New York City franchise, and then is now involved with the new franchise into Miami. So he's kind of always been at the beginning of these of these things. And I think he just spoke very well about all of it and the differences between managing the, like a collective team where everything was so selfless at Real Salt Lake to then managing absolute superstars at New York City. And uh, But I think one of the greatest takeaways was at the end of the episode, so tune in to hear it. <laughs> but talking about bad recommendations that he hears in football, he spoke about players getting told in America that they have to go professional early and that, you know, they have to go to Europe and we spoke about it previously in episodes and how there's so many, so much more than just one pathway to uh, professional football and to kind of see past that and I think he spoke on it brilliantly and, and said, you know, there's so many, there's so much more you can gain from going to college and growing up in America and playing soccer there which was um, refreshing to hear that somebody's experienced as him it's preaching similar things to what we've been preaching. Especially in light of uh, the MLS's recent development, but I totally agree with you. Uh, there are a lot of contrasts here in terms of MLS at the start, MLS now mm-hmm. being having a certain type of uh, makeup of the team at RSL versus New York City FC. The, the, there is a journey there to be, to be discussed, which was, um, quite frankly, very, very fascinating. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot to learn, and he is... He has been within football for so long that he he knows what he's talking about. Yeah. So uh, again, another little tease for you to stay uh, towards uh, the end. But uh, we'll we won't uh, reveal anything more. No. Uh, please listen to the episode. I think it's I think it's a great one. Honestly, Jason was was a great guest. So um, join us uh, after the break for our uh, chat with Jason Christ. This podcast is sponsored by Pimp Society, an eco-conscious clothing line specializing in hand painting, vintage denim, and second-hand clothing. They offer custom and set designs, and you can contact them at pimpsociety.no on their website for a full overview of what they have to offer. Uh, Or you can follow them on Instagram and uh, Facebook at Pimp Society. Um, So please check them out. Uh, very creative and a good-looking brand. Um, so hopefully I can see you guys rocking a little bit of Pimp Society items sooner rather than later. Now to our chat with Jason Kreis. We have Jason Kreis on the other line from sunny and beautiful Miami and how it Sorry. differs from Uddingston, Glasgow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, welcome, Jason. How are you doing? Thanks, guys. I'm doing great. Appreciate you having me on today. and. We've actually had a couple of days of, of rain here. So really, really uh, odd for us. I feel like we're actually, I feel like I've been living in England for the past two days, but <laughs> far from that, it's been sunny every day and now the sun's out again. So here we go. 
I appreciate you making us feel a, a bit better. At least I appreciate <laughs> that. <laughs> um, you, you are obviously now at um, at uh, your senior academy director at, at Miami, and you're also coach at Fort Lauderdale. How are things down there in terms of uh, you know with the recent light of recent uh, happenings, but also how are you how are you figuring out your own um, role there? Yeah, it's been interesting. Um, really interesting. Just past couple of years for myself. Um, in particular, the last 18 months or so, wearing three different hats, essentially. Um, the first hat is the first job that I got was was hired by Inter-Miami to take on a coaching role. Didn't really know what that coaching role was going to look like in the end. Um, but then that kind of transferred into becoming starting the academy here, um, really starting it from ground zero. So an interesting process with that and have become what we call the senior academy director. Essentially, it just means that I'm looking over what we used to have U19s um, and the U17s. And then also the second hat, which which came at, at the beginning of this year is the is the Fort Lauderdale CF, what we're called. So we're essentially a USL League One team and, a, and also a second team to the first team. Became that head coach, that's the second hat. And then the third hat, I started about 18 months ago as the USU 23 um, national team coach, um, which we hope will become the Olympic team. Um, when we qualify in March. So three different hats, a lot of balls in the air, a lot of juggling, um, a lot of learning. Um, and it's been, it's been an interesting, but also challenging and also fun uh, past couple of years. Yeah, we want to, towards the end there also of, this, of this chat, so to speak, touch upon the American talent development. Um, but before we go into that, we kind of want to take it back to, to your playing days. And um, I want to start with a quote that or that you are quoted saying you said that I just I didn't have the raw athleticism the size the speed the strength that a lot of these players have talking in a reference to today's players so I got by on two things a lot of soccer intelligence and a whole lot of grit and hard work which really um, runs through your entire career both as a player and coach and you achieve great things to that what do you attribute that um, attitude and that recognition of talent so to speak to yeah you know I I think um, I think you immediately have to talk about where you're from. You know, for me, I, I, what I go to right away is to think about my background and to think about my parents. Uh, my parents were both born and raised on a farm uh, in Iowa. Um, and to hear my dad tell the stories about waking up before the sun would rise um, to take care of the pigs and then go to school after that. And then come back from school and immediately be asked to do a lot of the chores and, and a lot of the farm work uh, for the rest of the day, um, his entire life. And my mother tells similar, very similar stories to all the chores that she had to do both before school and after school. Uh, and so I think that that hard work uh, mentality, um, the mentality that you can get anything you want if you work hardly enough, hard enough for it. Uh, I feel pretty strongly that both of those things come about from you know how you're raised um and so i think i was raised with that mindset um that you had to work extremely hard for anything that you want in, in your life uh, and so i think that that hard work has come from that um and then there's the, the side of just being competitive uh, and i see it so much through the um through the coaching lens now about difference differences in players and personalities um and i was just an extremely extremely hard competitor um, and that started again at a very, very young age. Uh, and I would have to look again to my parents. I think my mom, you know, anytime she plays a board game or a card game is super competitive and always wants to win. And so the same thing was 
for me my entire life. Um, and I can remember, you know, it, 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 it being not the best thing all the time. Um, right. When you're at young age and you lose something and you're crying and throwing a fit. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's <laughs> nowadays as you're a parent, you kind of think those things aren't, shouldn't be, um, shouldn't be ingrained or appreciated as much in the kids, but it's just the way I was. Uh, and it went on from, from a very young age to being in college at Duke and getting in massive fights with my roommates about ping pong games and uh, darts and, you know, anything that I, that I did and anything that I do, uh, I want to win in the worst way. And so I think that competitive desire really drives uh, a lot of, of, of what I did and was capable of doing. Jason, considering that we're all Duke graduates, we must ask, when you look back in your experience there, what do you think you gained the most? Um, you know, a lot, a lot. Um, again, trying to trying to make the difficult balance of schoolwork versus soccer. Um, and when I was there in school, it wasn't necessarily, you know, MLS didn't exist. And so the idea of going to Europe for me, you know, my senior year, I did actually go on a couple of trials. Those ideas were really kind of faint and far between. Uh, and so I just didn't really know that that professional soccer was going to be even a realistic option for me as I as I made my way through the years at Duke. And so to balance that sort of schoolwork and thinking about, OK, what's a backup plan going to be if there is a professional soccer for me at the end of this? Um, creates a really a really interesting challenge for a person to to have to do both of those things. And as you know, as again, I can reiterate the competitive desire in myself wanted to get top grades and be a top soccer player. Uh, and those 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 things to bounce those things off can be really challenging. Um, so it, you know, my backup plan was also medical school. So it wasn't like there was an easy course load um, for me. And and there's there is a real competitive I think atmosphere in and around Duke about uh, grades and marks. So that's, I think the, the biggest thing was just a, a learning about a balance of, of those things and a learning about a management of time. Did you, was that transition seamless for you or did it, uh, did it take a while? Oh, it took a while. Yeah, yeah it took a while. <laughs> my, my first year there at school, I, I you know, I, I, it was difficult for me to balance the two for sure. It was difficult for me to, to, to put the right effort into the schoolwork that was going to be necessary in order to get the grades that I had become accustomed to and the grades that I knew I would need if I was ever going to have any chance at continuing on with some sort of medical school or veterinarian school. So, um, but I, I got there pretty quick. Well, especially for pre-med. I mean, this yeah, is... Yeah, I mean, I thought my experience yeah, was tough, but me, me, me pre-med's a different ballgame. Exactly. We're talking from a cultural anthropology <laughs> right. and political science <laughs> and trying to slide by kind of attitude. So we could only imagine for that but uh, respect to you. So in Thanks. terms of going on then, you, 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 you touch upon that kind of lack of a pathway, so to speak, because you graduate 94, the great year in 94, I'm born, Kieran, by the way. Uh, and it doesn't start until 96, the MLS, even despite having a World Cup in 94. And there was a lot of uncertainty. Um, yeah. What is an outlook for you as a, we can only imagine we've been in that position, you know, two, three years ago. What is the outlook for you? Because there is no pathway. Are you thinking in, in terms of football terms? You said you were on trial. What yeah. is for a young guy? That must be, you know, the uncertainty must be pretty uh, overwhelming. Yeah, it was. It was um, in my senior year. Immediately after the soccer season ended, um, I had a couple connections um, that were setting up trials. Um, one of them was in Portugal and the other one was in Scotland, actually. 
Um, and so I went on one trial during the Christmas break and I went on the next trial during this, the spring break um, from the school. Um, and so both of those trials went well, but not well enough that they weren't, you know, they weren't offering me a contract when I was walking out the door. What they did say was that they would love to have me back for the preseason in the summer. Uh, and so I had sort of that as in my mind, okay, well, this, this seems like a viable option. There was also at that time um, what was called the USISL, which has now become the USL. Um, there was sort of a minor league professional situation. It was very regionalized there on the East, East Coast. And so I signed my first professional contract that spring of my senior year in 1994 for what was then the Raleigh Flyers. Um, and so I did have a professional contract. It was, you know, a six month contract or something like that, really short. So that was getting me sort of a foot in the door. And then I had sort of that idea of, okay, maybe I'll travel back to Europe uh, for a preseason, either in Portugal or Scotland, or maybe both and try to get a contract. And then as the summer wore on, uh, while I was playing with Raleigh, now this idea of major league soccer started. And so they started offering their very first contracts. Their first two contracts were actually the two college players that went to Indiana university. Then they had two contracts that went to tab Ramos. And I think, um, I think the other one might've been John Harks or Tony Miola, but I was literally the fifth player to sign an MLS contract that summer. Um, in June of 2004, I signed an MLS contract, which would start um, the following year. Um, so actually 95 is when I graduated. Sorry, I keep saying 94. 94 was a soccer season, 95. So the summer of 95, I signed my first MLS contract, which is a one-year contract. And basically just had to then spend the next six months preparing myself um, to get drafted and to play in MLS the very next year. So it all actually, what, what, what was what, what, so much uncertainty through my senior year actually became really well-timed um, such that I graduated. And then now there's contracts for MLS and I had already had a contract with this USISL team. And so it was pretty seamless, actually. I think I, I had, to, had to consider myself very fortunate that, that, you know, six months after I graduate, MLS is starting. Jason, you're now a Dallas Burn legend where you spent the majority of your playing career and you still remain uh, the club's leader in games played as well as in goals and assists. Can you talk us through what it was like being an MLS player at the time and the league had just officially begun and it's grown every year with more teams and more fans and more stadiums? Yeah, it's one of those situations where if, you know, if, if I look at it, uh, how it felt when I was started in 1996, I would say it was absolutely amazing, uh, incredible. You know, what an amazing experience to have this brand new league and everywhere we went, people were paying attention to it. We have big player, one, one or two big players in each team. And so you're now experiencing this feeling of, you know, getting off an airplane and having people waiting to meet a guy like Hugo Sanchez and Leonel Alvarez or being at the hotel and wanting to get his autograph. And so you're, you're experiencing all these things you never thought possible. Uh, as a soccer player, you never thought that there would be a, a major professional league in our country. Um, as you're, you know, going through the high school years, making all these sacrifices and commitments, and missing school dances, and and all these experiences to sacrifice for the game, you never thought that well, actually there could be an actual reward at the end of this, uh, at, at the end of all of this. So, amazing experience for this first that first year in particular um, to be a part of it, and we just, you know. I think we were all just so grateful for, for what we were given, the opportunities we were given. So that's sort of one side of it. But now if you look back at it from where I sit now, um, I'm actually absolutely shocked at, at, <laughs> at all of the things we didn't have. Um, you know, we had no training facilities. We didn't stay in nice hotels. You know, we took the earliest and cheapest flights everywhere. 
the food, the meals were horrible everywhere he went. And so it was, it was, it was quite rudimentary. Um, but that doesn't take anything away from the experience at the time. It's just to tell you that the league has come so drastically far um, in the last 20 years. It's, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And, and it's, it's, it's a great thing. And when we've had you and we've had, we had Ali Curtis on last time, um, we've had, we've had a special episode about the MLS for us. It's a, it's a, it's incredible, the growth and the, what I think American culture brings to, to, to sports as well mm-hmm. is to create incredible invent and to make everything so professional. And mm-hmm. for us as coming in as foreigners to Duke and comparing the, the experience there from a professional perspective, we'll arguably never feel more professional in our lives in terms of what we're given and so it's a matter of perspective in that case like you say um to just see the incredible growth of it as well yeah let me tell you a side a little side story here now that you mentioned that that how nice things were at duke and how professional (laughs) you felt around the surroundings um when i started coaching was 2007 um and at that time now all the all the major colleges had had real nice training facilities had nice sort of soccer specific stadiums almost that they're playing in and i just kept thinking to myself and i would tell a lot of our assistant coaches and a lot of people around our clubs that man we're going to be drafting these college kids and they're going to come into our environment and be like man i just left the professional environment i've just gone (laughs) take a major step back and so it's you know it took you know another five six seven years for mls to have the type of facilities that the college athletes were already well uh, used to. Yeah. We're uh, spoiled in that sense, but at least we have that perspective because I think for a lot of American players, that's what they're used to, but it's yeah. flipped. It's, it's weird. Um, moving on into your coaching role, when you take, you know, the, the 24 hour transition, so to speak, from being Real Salt Lake captain to being a coach, and then you become suddenly manager of your, of your teammates and very, very good friends how was it in reinventing yourself as as head coach, Jason Christ, the head coach rather than the player, in such a short span of time? Um, you know, again, perspective is everything. At the time, I would tell you that it wasn't it wasn't too difficult. Um, I had already been thinking in that way for a couple of years. I took my B license in two thousand and one, um, so I had had a B uh, a B coaching license for five, six years before that decision was made. I was already thinking about, okay, you know, as you get 30, 31, 32 years old as a professional player, you're starting to think about what's next. And I was very, had it very clear in my mind that I wanted to be a coach. So I'd already kind of put a lot of thought into if I was the coach of this team, how would I want to run it and how would I want to lead my team and what would be important to me, all these sorts of things. So from that perspective, that, that transition seemed pretty, pretty easy. Um, and also the perspective of the players um, made it really easy on me. Um, the Eddie Popes, the Kerry Tallies, the, the big players and the older players that were on our team, Andy Williams, you know, we had a lot of guys that had very similar MLS experience to me, um, which, which I had been their teammates and really good friends with. Chris Klein was another one. Uh, to then the very next day become their coach, they could have made that situation really difficult for me. They could have been trying to manipulate me or take advantage of their situation. And none of them did. They all treated me with immediate respect and immediate deference to to what I was doing and and trying to do. Um, so from that point of view, I, I think it was it, it went pretty well. Now, about six months after I started it, I started to realize, man, this is really difficult, um, really, really difficult. 
and you go through the experiences of trading um, your best friend on the team in Chris Klein, um, one of the very first trades we did, we traded him to the LA Galaxy. Uh, and so having to make that kind of a decision about your essentially best friend in the team, and he was my wife's absolute best friend, um, was his wife. So, you know, having to make that kind of sacrifice and decision um, and go home and not speak to your wife for a week because she's so mad at you, uh, but, but doing it, but doing it all because you, you know that it was best for the club and best for the team in the long run. And then to get to the end of the season and now have to tell some players, you know, we're not picking up your contract. This is essentially the end of the road for you here at Real Salt Lake. And, and having to deliver those messages to really, really good friends is very difficult. Uh, and so a, a, the long-winded answer, a short answer to the long-windedness here is that it seemed really easy at the time. But as I went, started to really understand what the process was going to look like, I, I recognized pretty quickly that it was it's an extremely difficult job. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a very, very emotionally trying, stressful um, difficult job where you're having to make decisions all the time. Emotionally speaking, was it, did you find it more challenging than as a player be, simply because you are now responsible for more people than yourself, basically? 1000%, 1000%. I was the guy, I was the player that was very, very regimented about everything I did you know, about the, how much extra work I would do, the extra running, working in the gym, what I would eat, you know, in the days leading up to the match, how much sleep I needed, you know, all of these things. I was extremely regimented. So I always thought, man, this, you know, it's, it's really difficult to be a professional soccer player. You know, I don't think people understand that. And always would look at the coaching situation and say, oh, that's such an easy job. You know, mm -hmm. he's, he gets to show up and put on a training session, leave a couple hours later and go home and enjoy his family because he doesn't have all this extra stress about, you know, treating his body correctly. But never really identified that there would be a lot of extra stress about just trying to manage people and get the best out of people and make difficult decisions every single day and every single week, lineups and 18s and trades and everything that goes into it. So, yeah, it's uh, there's no comparison. The emotional toll uh, and the difficult the difficulty of the task at hand is is many many multiples more difficult than it is being a player. Interesting. Yeah, Jason, your philosophy turned a struggling franchise that Real Salt Lake was at the time into one of the MLS powerhouses, and you built a strong collective ethos predicated in the slogan "The team is a star," and this ran counter to the MLS star-driven recruitment at the time. How do you go? How do you go by implementing a, a culture like that, and then how do you tr make sure it transcends into a winning culture? Yeah, I think you know some of this goes back to like I said before, where I had been thinking for several years about um, the team culture that I wanted to try to create um, and the team identity that I wanted to create, and what I actually thought would be successful in MLS, um, and I felt really, really strongly about it, um, and it took me a while to really kind of put my the ideas in my head into words. Um, and we implemented that sort of philosophy in our first off season there at Real Salt Lake. Um, and Garth Lagerway was also a Duke graduate was the GM at that time. And we sat down and, and, and put pen to paper. I think I probably still have the file on my computer here, um, a mission statement. Um, and in that mission statement, it was very clear. And we wanted that to be a mission statement, not just for the team, um, and not just for even the coaches, but for the entire club 
Uh, and in that mission statement was, it was very, very clearly stated that the team is the most important aspect of the entire club. Uh, and so what we were wanting people to understand was that the, the, the players, the team, the, the group that, that has to go out there and perform is the most important aspect, but it's bigger than that, right? It's, a, it's an idea that the team that could represent for somebody that works on the ticket sales, that could work for, that could represent the entire club. That's the team for them. The collective had to always be bigger than the individual. Uh, and, and so in that offseason, we made that mission statement and I put some real thought into what I wanted our, our team sort of mission statement to be. Um, and we had, we had picked up a lot of players um, through trade, through picking them up off of waivers, through other avenues, even our foreign signings that had been in situations where they had failed. Um, we didn't have any player that was, you know, the, the young up and coming star from Argentina that we were able to go and select. We didn't have any player that was the young superstar U.S. national team player that we were able to go and select. All of the players that we selected had come from a big failure uh, and not too, not too far back in their playing career. And so what we, we, we decided to do was to, to adopt this idea that we were going to develop stars in our team only through the success of our team. And so you aren't going to be known around the league as one of the best player, one of the best holding midfielders. Um, based on just your play alone. The only chance that you would have to be recognized in the league as being one of the best holding midfielders or the best number 10, the best striker, was if the team succeeded. Uh, and so what we said was that we're going to develop stars through the success of our team and only through the success of our team. And so that's that kind of then just quickly molded itself into the team is the star. We don't have any stars. The team is going to be the star and we're going to develop names and we're going to develop careers and you're going to get bigger salaries and more identity and opportunities with the national team only if this team wins. Uh, and we got real buy-in on that. We made it really, really clear from very first day of preseason of 2008 that that was going to be who we were. And if you didn't want to be a part of that, then, then we would quickly move you on. Was it the... But like you said, was it because of the type of players that came in due to their kind of underdog um, circumstances, so to speak, do you think that allowed for that uh, message to be hammered home to even an even greater degree? I do. I do. I do. But, but even having said that, so that's the beginning, right? That's the foundation that you lay. Right. But then we continue on with that year after year. And so now, now they still, because they were there at the beginning, a lot of these players, Kyle Beckerman starts to gain some real notoriety, become a national team player. Nick Armando is doing the same, you know, Javier Morales is now people are starting to watch this player and see what a, you know, creative and attacking threat he can be all, but all these players still went back to the fact that they were only going to be, they only gained any of that notoriety based on the fact that the team was really together. And that the team succeeded. And so now, as we brought new players in, right, doesn't matter what they had done. We could have, and I, I'm sure if I was scour the, the, the rosters, I'm sure we did bring in players that had had big successes somewhere. Um, but we essentially said to them, if you want to come here, before we would sign any player, we would talk to all of them. Before you're going to be afforded the opportunity to come here, before we sign you, before we trade for you, before we pick you in the college draft, you need to understand that this is who we are. 
Uh, and so do you want to be a part of this? You know, look me in the face and look me in the eye and make me believe that you want to be a part of this, that you're willing to sacrifice, you know, whatever it is, you're going to be sacrificing playing time. You're going to be sacrificing time, you know, spent away from the field. You're going to be expect, you know, sacrificing freedoms to be a part of this culture that we built here where the team is the star. Uh, and so it's, you know, it, it, I think it, it did a real nice job of sort of continuing to, to be there and to continue to be a really important aspect of, of who we were. Well, we're very excited to announce that we have a new sponsor and it is the Creamy Boys and they are now the official ice cream of Bropod. They're a Los Angeles first New Zealand style ice cream company located in Santa Monica, California. Like Scotland, it's actually pretty warm there, which is why they're serving up the freshest fruit ice cream on planet Earth. So if you got a hankering for ice cream, swing by and tell them you're listening to Bropod and they'll sort you out for free. That's a guarantee. And even if you're on LA, you can follow their journey on Instagram at the Creamy Boys. Check out their merchandise and join Cream Nation. You did an incredible job there. Uh, so good, in fact, that you were hired by New York City FC. And the makeup of the RSL team differs a bit in the sense from the from the New York City FC team. You have the obvious yeah. superstars, uh, and then you have some. Other players, the uh, mixed disc who I can think of now because he's half Norwegian. Other players who are also, you know, U.S. national team players. Two pretty different uh, compositions, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Did you find it more, was that more challenging then to try and hammer that home? Or was that more because, I don't know, the city football group, they have their certain ideas after how they want to run things? How was that? Mm-hmm. I feel like there are a lot of kind of factors in play to, yeah, in your case there. Yeah, no, it, it was. It was difficult, um, as we as we know, <laughs> as we know, after getting fired after a year um, there, I can tell you that 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 there were some things that that I didn't get right right away, um, and some missteps. And I do think you know, from that mentality, thinking that it can't be the same here, you know, when you have a player like David Villa, Frank Lampard, Andrea Pirlo, um, even Mix Discord at the time was a was a big national team player leading up into that, so. You know, when you have those players, can you really get can you really get them to buy into a team philosophy? And so I don't know that I did a, a good enough job of making those guys buy into that type of philosophy, because I still think at the end of the day, they all recognize that it's a team sport as well. Mm-hmm. And I think at the end of the day, they all recognize that if they want to win, they're going to have to be together. There's just no other way in our game. That's one of the beautiful, beautiful things about our game is that there's no one player that can just take a whole team on his back like there are in some, some other sports. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think it was a, it was a difficult prospect for me. It was a difficult prospect to kind of continue to implement. Um, and it's a difficult, it's, it's a different prospect to manage some of those types of names, um, because of where they've been and what their experiences are and just who they are as people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I considering the fact that New York city FC maybe have not become that, soccer capital as, as as they've stayed in the mission uh originally and considering how other franchises have done in their first season i i, I find it you know awfully you're awfully hard done by there um and also compare that to your time in at rail salt lake when you are proven and given the benefit of time basically to build a culture um you know it's it, if, if they're firing you it doesn't really make sense then if you're given a year is it does it feel did it feel like a case of broken promises almost 
in terms of not being given that time? Yeah, it does. It does. Um, in Orlando City, it is the same, basically the same way. Um, yeah. A little bit longer, but, but even more of a, a difficult situation when you come into a team in the middle of the season. But I would say it this way, that, that when you go in to interview for those jobs, um, they know who you are, right? They've done all the research that you guys have about me and what the implement, what the system was at Real Salt Lake and what the team chemistry was and sort of our motto. They, they, they know who I am. And I think I do a pretty good job of expressing that um, in an interview process. And in both of those situations, I made it very clear that guys, this is going to take time. Um, New York city was, was easy to tell them, Hey, I mean, look at the expansion records of, the past, whatever it is, you know, at that time, 15, 18 years of the league and see how difficult it is to be an expansion team, no matter, no matter whether, you know, you flood this team right away with three DPs and academy prospects from the under 23 team. And, you know, there's a lot of things that we were going to do that I was told we were going to do before I got hired in that position, but I was still saying all the things that guys, this is going to take time. Now, when, when you go through that interview process and you think that everybody's on the same page and they now present you a contract, that's a four-year contract for New York City and a four-and-a-half-year contract in Orlando, you think to yourself, okay, I clearly have, uh, I have clearly communicated with them because they're making a major commitment to me. And so you think, okay, this is, they understand that this is going to be a long road. This is going to take us several years. I still believe very, very firmly that it takes three years to develop anything that's going to be consistently good in MLS. And then to have the rug pulled out from you under, after one year in New York and after under two years in, in Orlando, uh, and really only one full season in Orlando um, that started from preseason to all the way to the end, you start to question yourself about, you know, did they even hear you? You know, did they understand that this is you're still on a pathway? And so both of those, you know, time to look back at them. You know, I think about the failures that I had, the things I wish I had done differently. But I can't look back at either of those situations and say that I failed. I look back at both of the situations and say that, that I didn't get a chance to finish. Mm-hmm. I didn't get the chance to finish the project, to finish my journey there. It's, and it's also, I mean, it's sadly symptomatic of how fickle the management uh, industry is now. I mean, you aren't, you aren't given time, you know, and that's, uh, you see in the case of Orlando, you, com- you conduct a complete uh, squad overall in 2018, and then you lose the job shortly after, and then they clinch their first playoff appearance actually a few days ago, um, yeah. you know? And so again, proving that it takes time and... Yeah. <laughs> And which I, I don't know, I don't know if I want to, if you say, oh, that it feels good for you, but it, at least it proves a point in case that, you know, a, a new franchise, like the case of Orlando uh, and New York City FC, that it takes time. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, you know, a good friend of mine um, who's also head coach um, for many, many years as a professional told me it's something that I think is, is spot on. He said in, in, in head coaching or soccer management, you need, you need two of three things. <laughs> there are three, three factors and you must have two. Otherwise you have no chance to succeed. One is control the other. So control of the decisions about who's going to be in your team and who's not going to be in your team. The second is money. You need money to find players that are of the, of, of a good enough and high enough quality to, to succeed at the top flight. And the third is time. 
And so, you know, if you have control in time, you're probably in a good place. Mm -hmm. If you have money in time, you're probably in a good place. If you have control and money, you're probably in good place. Right. Um, but you got to have two or three, two of the three. Jason, you had the opportunity to spend six months in Manchester, shadowing Pellegrini's uh, Manchester City, as well as their development squad that was led by Patrick Vieira. And we've mentioned mm -hmm. some of the, the legends that you've also worked with in Pirlo Lampard via Kaka. Are there some certain qualities that these elite performers share? Yes, uh, yes. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's interesting to think back about the, the six months of Manchester and to be, you know, seeing the training habits of guys like David Villa, Vincent Company, Sergio Aguero. Um, what you recognize, what I recognize looking back at all of those players is that I go back to that, what we discussed earlier, that competitive desire. The, these guys, you know, could take my competitive desire and multiply it times 10. Um, these guys are, you know, absolute killers about wanting to win. Absolute killers about, you know, their desire and their commitment level to do anything it takes to win on the day of the matches is is unparalleled and i think that's why they've they've garnered the success and the notoriety that they have um and so that's that's the 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 single quality that i would say makes them elite i mean obviously there's the talent aspect there's the mentality aspect but it's just that that competitive desire to do anything it takes to to win and how really angry they get when they don't uh, and how that can affect everybody around them <laughs> if they're not winning can can be difficult yeah. no but i totally agree i think Kieran, i mean the level we play at and we've had premiership exposure as well uh the talent is like even up there you have some incredible talent but it's the the mental it's fortitude talent. that is yeah. incredible and for us in the case of norway we will never uh, not uh, talk about holland at uh, dortmund who has uh -huh. who's nine, 20 years old and has the most insane mentality incredible yeah. talent but mentality yeah. is, as you've, you know, well been exposed to as well, which is for me, yeah. you know, incredible admiration. Yeah. Jason, yeah. I'm wondering, obviously it's from the outside, it just seems amazing working with some of these people, but was there any challenges in working with these stars? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, for sure. And as I said, you know, I, I got some things wrong um, in my years and, and, and I had no experience. Um, I had no experience managing somebody like David Villa. Uh, Frank Lampard and, and so for the first the first six months of New York City we only had one DP um, we were supposed to have Lampard we signed him but Manchester City ended up keeping him for themselves and so for six months it was only David Villa which I think was a mistake uh, and we had kind of made a plan that it wouldn't be that way we had made a plan that we would sign two DPs right away um, but unfortunately we lost out on the Lampard situation so you have this this high level elite world cup winning <laughs> European champions league winning player surrounded by regular MLS guys, like a, like a Jason Christ was as a player, you know, I mean, who is, who is Medi Bellucci or Andrew Jacobson compared to David Villa. And so you have this player who's, who's clearly frustrated with the situation um, and clearly frustrated that he hadn't been surrounded by, top top level talent as i'm sure he thought he was going to being that he was signing for city football group team uh and so you know to to manage a player like that was difficult 
Um, and I had always managed from the point of view, I would sit down with the, the players at the beginning of the year and have meetings and say, look, I have an open door policy. I want to hear feedback from you guys about anything, about the training session, about the food, about if you don't like anything that's going on, come talk to me. I have an open door policy all the time. I appreciate the feedback. I'll use it. Sometimes I'll use it. Sometimes I won't. But I, I want that kind of feedback. I want to have those types of interactions with all of you guys. And really went to him and said that pretty clearly to him because he was going to be our captain. Frank was going to be our captain originally, but Frank wasn't coming. So now Via was going to be the captain and said, there's this open door policy. Well, I didn't really think about the fact that some players would never do that. Some players from different cultures. And I think in particular, Davia came from a culture where he wasn't going to go and communicate with the manager. He wasn't going to go and, you know, think, take on this role of trying to almost help the manager in a way he wanted to be communicated with, he wanted to be coached. And so the open door policy wasn't the right one. It should have been, I'll come to your door, David Villa, um, and, and talk to you. You know, I won't expect you to come through my door because you probably culturally aren't comfortable doing that. So I need to go find your door. And if I'd had a chance to do it again, that's what I would have done differently. Uh, and that's what I did do differently in Orlando City with Kaká. And I think that that management situation was was a much better one. How, in terms of you, was it similar for Kaká as it was Davia? It was more of a proactive approach for, on, on, your, on your part? Yes, it was. Yeah. So now I had, after having some reflection and actually speaking to some, some mentors, in the world they they had said because i explained to them I, you know i have this open door policy i told these guys they could come in but a guy like david Villa would never even come in and they said you ever think about the fact that he's not he's not american he doesn't <laughs> he may not have ever had that as an experience and he may not have been comfortable to do that to come to you um for whatever reason perception or you know machismo whatever it is um maybe you should consider going to their door and so when i went down to orlando that was the first thing i did was i actually went to kaka's neighborhood and said I'd like to meet you somewhere on your turf, on your terms, and talk about kind of my management style and how I see you and how I see all this fitting together. I guess that leads into my next question, in which you in part have answered. How would you compare Jason Christ in 2008 to Jason Christ right now, 20, 2020, basically? There's there's no comparison. There's there's just no there's no way for me to explain it other than to say if I was to give you I, I don't know, maybe a textbook, a calculus textbook that's a thousand pages long and you opened up the book and looked at the first page, that was where I was in 2008. And now a thousand pages later, I feel like I've learned all that information. Uh, and so I just, I, I think I'm, I'm, I mean, multiple, multiple, multiple times better coach, multiple times better manager, multiple times better organizer. Um, everything, I think I've improved drastically and, and now I'm in this situation, as we talked about at the very beginning, you know, where it's been an interesting couple of years. And so now I'm at the situation where I feel like I've learned so much that, you know, I'd like to apply it again. And so I'm hopeful that there's another opportunity out there for me. Sure there will be. Yeah. Thinking a little bit bigger picture now, given all of your experience, what do you think are the necessary factors that need to be in place to ensure that American soccer can take that next step globally in terms of talent development, league attraction, or even national team achievement? Yeah, you know, I think I, I think a better way to say it is I don't think it's about the next steps that we need to take because I think we're already taking those steps. I think we're headed in a really, really positive direction right now. 
uh, in our country. I think it's taken a long, long time for us to recognize how important the youth development is and how the clubs need to really own that youth development and not kind of sit on the side and let U.S. soccer do it all. Um, and so I think that's that's a really positive step that is now producing. Now we're starting to see the production of a lot of really top level young American players that are playing in MLS, step one. You know, we have the Brendan Aronsons, Paxton Palmy calls. The list goes on and on and on about the, the really interesting young American players that are playing in our country. And then you've got the next level of that, of, of the really, really interesting, exciting young players playing in Europe. You know, Christian Pulisic, Weston McKinney, um, Chris Richards, uh, Gio Desmond, Holland, Gio Reyna in Germany. I mean, it's just, you know, list Timothy Way. I mean, keep going, keep going, mm -hmm. keep going. Um, and so I think, I think we have already put a system in place that is starting, we're starting to bear the fruits of that. And so I just think we need to continue to nurture that. We need to continue to, to really, really push for the development of the young player. Um, and that, that again, I want to drive, drive home the point that that needs to be driven by the major league soccer clubs. Uh, I think that, that they've done a good job already and that we're continuing to improve with that. Yeah. And you have the under now recently under the umbrella of the MLS academies now and within the leagues, there seems to be more of a, centralized form of, of talent development. Would you care to uh, give us an insight into the work that's being done at to Miami for Lord ACF in terms of bringing forward talent for the, you know, USL League One club and, and the academies? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, we've got a really um, interesting situation here. We've had the academy now for one year and three months. Um, we started in August of uh, 2019 um, with just, you know, and six, six months prior to that, going out and finding the players um, in the South Florida area and putting those teams together, identifying the talent and, and putting those rosters together and just having trained them for, for an hour a year, you're starting to really see some, some interesting top level young players. Uh, and, and then now we have started this USL team, the Fort Lauderdale CF, which we look at it as basically the top team of our academy. And so we look at this as, a, as, a, as an under 23 majority team that, that when we now sprinkle some older players or sprinkle in some players that are coming from outside spaces um, to help put the final touches on the development of our young academy players. And so we've seen, you know, I've, we have a player that's played for us this season that's, that's now scored three goals in the season and he's 15 years old. He just turned 15. Uh, and so now he'll be offered a, a, a USL professional contract as we speak. We have another young player that's 17 that played under uh, under 17 soccer last year. Um, so he's 17, a winger that's just been offered a USL League One contract. We have a player that's 18 years old, just turned 18, that's been offered a first team contract. And so we see this um, as a successful situation where we've you know had a chance, even just after one year with working with some of these players, been able to now move them up into professional contracts and one into an MLS contract. So at the end of the day, that's, that's a hundred percent about who, who we are. We're trying to develop players for our MLS team and for professional teams around the world. So after one year, I think we have to feel pretty good about what we've done and, and looking down the pipeline. I can, I can tell you that, that I think it's going to continue. Brilliant. Um, we have, we're coming to the very end of the conclusion. We'll let you go. We know you're a busy man, uh, but we have a recurring segment in which we ask a bit, you know, out of the box questions. 
And okay. so we just uh, more so actually more inquisitive and more deeper. Actually, it's actually not as fun as it sounds. But uh, <laughs> we would start with the first one. It would be what advice would you give to your 22 year old self? A, you know, a young, a young man like self graduating college. Um, I guess my I mean at my 22 year old self was was already you know I'd signed an MLS contract, and so I tell some of these young players that I'm working with now that that I would like to have gone back, and I would tell myself to enjoy it more. Um, I think I just, you know, was just so ingrained in this mentality that I had to succeed and all of this work that I had to do that I oftentimes was probably miserable <laughs> um, on the training field and miserable with my teammates. And, you know, I, I think I would just tell myself that, that you, you need to, at the end of the day, you need to enjoy this um, because it's only going to last a very finite time. Uh, you know, I, I played until I think I was 33 or 34 that's, that's like a 10 year career. So, you know, for me, it would be just, it would be absolutely to, Hey, recognize that this is a, this is a, this is a gift that you've, that you've earned. You haven't been given. I don't want to say it that way. This is a gift that you've gone out and earned, but you need to enjoy it. You need to smile and, and have a good times uh, a bit more. I think we, I mean, it's more so people think it's, it's fun and it's fun, but it's also as a coach or as a player winning, it feels good. Yes. But it's more so, so the sense of relief. You know, there yeah. is more of those feelings involved more so than people might think uh, from the outside. Yeah. And, you know, but, and, and that's the truth of the matter. You're, you're absolutely correct. And it does feel like relief sometimes, but if that feels like relief and when you lose, it feels like utter misery. Yeah. <laughs> what are we doing? I mean, <laughs> what are we doing? Yeah. I mean, if the very best I can feel is relief and after I lose, I got to feel absolutely miserable. I mean, no, no, we no, need no. to. You need to you're absolutely it. right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> Jason, are there any bad recommendations that you hear in your industry? Um, there's, there's one that jumps to my mind. Um, and, you know, again, just sort of being an MLS coach for a lot of years and now starting to work with some of these kids that are, you know, gaining some notoriety. There's one, I think, and it's actually kind of a little bit the same message, but I want to, I want to, hone in on, on sort of two aspects of it. The first aspect is, is that there's a lot of young American players that are told that they need to play in Europe. Um, and that's been going on for, for a while. Um, and I, when I started out as a young coach, I really disagreed with that. Um, and now as somebody that's working with young players that are 17 or 18 years old, and they're being told that they should go to Europe, for me, that's not true. For me, that's not true at all. You, you should go and you should play for a club and a coach that you believe is going to help you in your development. It is not fair to say that, that you could go to any club in Europe and be developed better than you could be at Inter Miami or, or any of the MLS clubs. Uh, and so I just think that that blanket statement is given to our young players too often. Um, yes, absolutely. I think that, you know, at the end of the day and being completely honest, right. We know that the top level where the top level in the world is right. I mean, the league in England, the league in Spain, the league in, in Germany, the league, the league in Italy, right? These are the, the top leagues in the world. So we shouldn't delude ourselves by saying, oh, you should stay in MLS because it's the top league in the world. No, we should, we should appreciate and respect that players want to reach the top level and play at that top level. But let's not, let's not think that, that you have to go there right away. Um, you need to go there when you're ready. And in case by case, it's different for every player. So that's the one thing that I think is said here too often. 
which is, it's frankly, in my opinion, completely untrue. It's, it's true for some players. It's definitely not true for most. Yeah. And so, you know, it needs to be more individualized. And the other aspect of that is that this idea that we need to sign professionally right away. And, and because I don't think that's the best pathway for every player either. I think there's still, there's still something to be gained on a soccer perspective, but even more so from just a human development perspective that some players should be, would be better off to go to college for at least a year, a couple of years, maybe even four years, um, recognizing that you can still become a professional after that. Mm-hmm. There's just different pathways for every player. And I just think sometimes we, we represent it that there's only one pathway. I, I could not agree more. Yeah, uh, two things you said that we actually speak about um, a lot, and we came across it in a lot in America, like the young players we played with at college and, they were just always talking about going and playing in Europe. And we're thinking, obviously, we were very grateful for the, the setup we had at Duke. And we were thinking, we don't realize how good this is. Like, you're 18, 19, you're not like, you go to Europe now, you think you're going to get into like one of the best academies in Europe. Like, the level we're at right now, you're not going to be walking into those type of academies. And what you have here is, is way better than, than what you would have in Europe if you were to go over at 18, 19 type of thing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, even for like, as, as you say, the one way of doing it is simply not the case because there are so many different development trajectories. Kieran, you can speak for yourself. I'm incredibly late bloomer. I benefited yeah. so much from college because I know I tell these players that I play with in Scotland. I said, I would never survive in the academy system here. You kidding me? Like at 16, 17, I wasn't even a defender at 16. I was the smallest in the class when I was 16. And I went to college yeah. and I came out a man, you know, you know how it is with the, the physical training, obviously, but the human yeah. aspect that has yeah. more implications on you as a player that you, than people will think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Last question. Which this is uh, this is our most creative one, I'd say. Um, it says, if you can have a gigantic billboard any anywhere with anything on it, metaphorically speaking, getting a message out to millions or billions, what would it say and why? We're putting on the spot here. We know. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of messages that actually mean a lot to me, and and I kind of go back to. I want to go back to sort of the first one, and I already referenced it in this interview at the very beginning. Uh, and I think it's said, I think, you know, it, it's one that's said to uh, around the world to a lot of people. And I don't, I don't know that people maybe mean it or think about it the same way I do. But the saying goes for, in, in my mind that, that you can achieve anything you want if you're willing to work hard enough for it. Um, and, I, you know, I know it's it, it, I can't say you can't say, oh, I, I could have been a professional basketball player if I'd wanted if I worked hard enough for it. No, I don't mean it in that aspect. So I, I don't want it to sort of seem like this ridiculous statement, but, but in my mind, you can. It just may be a little bit different than what you had thought, right? And so if you're, let's just take professional soccer, that's the easiest one, right? If you want to be a professional soccer player in the worst way and you're willing to do anything that it takes to get there, right? But let's say you don't make it as a professional soccer player. But because of all of that work and discipline and everything that you're willing to sacrifice, right? And maybe you went the college pathway and so you, now you've got a good degree um, and you've shown this ability to work within teams and an ability to just strive, strive, strive. My guess is you're going to end up with a pretty successful career. And so you understand what I mean? Yeah. So you're still Absolutely. able to really achieve something incredible 
because you've put in that work. So maybe it wasn't that exact goal that you talked about, but it's an awful lot. And so I think that message for me, it, it reigns true for me from, from an individual perspective, because I do truly believe that I wasn't blessed with the physical capabilities to compete at the level I was competing at. Um, but because I was willing to work so hard for it and be have such a competitive mindset and such a strong mindset, I was able to garnish some level of success, success from that. Brilliant. I could not agree more. Um, and you've taken a big chunk of your time and you've been incredible guest for us. Uh, so we really, really appreciate it. Um, and then you'll you'll let us know if you guys are uh, short on covering the defense. Yeah. Kieran, I will step in <laughs> gladly. Don't worry about it. And then, right. uh, and then we can uh, we can talk about it later. <laughs> All right. Sounds great, guys. Take care. It was fun. I appreciate yeah, thank it, Jason. You Thanks much, you. Jason. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to BroPod, whether it was your first time, your second, or if you actually have followed us all the way through. We really appreciate your support. You can find us on Twitter at BroPod1 or on Facebook, BroPod, where we follow up on our guests and their stories. We'll catch up with you in a couple of weeks.